This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, David. Hi, David. Hey. So we're joined by DHH today. Let's get right into it, I guess. So uh, at your keynote, you talked about service-oriented architectures a little bit. Well, microservices in particular, I think, is what you were saying, right? We talked about that a lot on the show, and I was really excited when you kind of came to the defense of, of monorails, um, because I think about two episodes before we had gone down to RailsConf, I also went on a similar rant about how monorails are incorrectly blamed for a lot of problems and that they're a lot easier to work on and more fun to work on. You gave an example specifically in the, in the talk about WriteBoard, which was a feature you guys wrote and then included, or an app, I guess you wrote, and then included its functionality in multiple applications. Is that correct? Yep. So I guess like you, you said you had a lot of pain with that, but didn't really expand on what the, pains, what the pain points there were. And I was wondering, what kind of experiences did you have that led you down the road of like, I never want to do this again? Sure. I, I think the pain points were sort of anything that's involved with running more than one system and having those systems talk to each other. Basically, distributed software. So, I mean, I love HTTP, right? Like, I've spent 12 years of my life basically working on a framework that's all about wrapping HTTP in great ways. And HTTP is a wonderful protocol for collaborating between things you do not control. When you do control the things, it's still not as good as a method call. It's still not as good as being able to reference a constant right away. You have all these sort of compromises that enter the equation when you're dealing with distributed software. A lot of that is around failure states and retries and sort of catch up. And what do you do if one app is down? And how do you sort of how many times should you retry? What do you do while the app is down? There's all sort of these contingencies that you have to bake in and accommodate that you just don't have to deal with when it's just a feature in an app. And sort of, so that's the whole sort of, operational part of it, which I think is, is pretty painful, to, to put it mild. Then there's also basically just the software construction part of it, which is that if these things live in their own apps, now you have two apps that you have to maintain, keep up to date, um, and all the rigmarole that comes with sort of just managing an app from a software development perspective. Then on top of that, you have the fact that you sort of, you're dealing with this constrained space. When you're, you're talking over HTTP, you're generally saying, oh, well, um, here's some JSON. Um, can you give me some other JSON? Which is, I mean, that's wonderful. Like, that's a great protocol, right? But it's a narrow protocol, a very narrow protocol compared to the fluidity and expressiveness that we have when we're dealing with objects, right? When you can just call any method on, on any of the objects that you have with sort of any of the parameters that you have without having to serialize it into JSON and back out again, it's just so much easier to deal with. It's going to ramp up your complexity a lot, right? I mean, you have, like you, were, like you mentioned, you have to deal with failure. And it's funny when people introduce microservices so that they can rewrite parts of it in another language because they want to increase performance when they're using HTTP as their transfer protocol, because if there's one thing to make your app fast, it's add more intermediate HTTP requests. Yeah, I think that that's, that's definitely an issue. Then, then you have to deal with 
sort of the changes in the architectures that come from that, right? So when mm-hmm. the latency goes from a method dispatch to HTTP call, like that's like, I don't know how many orders of magnitude that is, but a lot. Um, yeah. All of a sudden you have to deal with bulk now. Like things you could just do a single update or whatever. You can no longer do that. You're trying to reduce the number of HTTP calls to preferably one. So you have to sort of architect everything around sort of these bulk update actions. And it just perverts and distorts the architecture in ways you're willing to do when that's the only thing you can, right? Like if you have an app that needs to talk to Flickr, you're not going to call their code base directly, right? You're not going to get access straight to their domain models. You have to go through HTTP. And in that context, HTTP is, is wonderful. But why would you subject yourself to that level of complexity if you don't absolutely positively have to? Right. What I see a lot of is... Um... Because of all the, I guess, hype that's built up around service-oriented architectures and microservices, people are jumping to them earlier than they perhaps would have before. And they're skipping that whole notion of like, I I can't remember whose term this was, but the sacrificial architecture, um, where you basically figure out what kind of company you are and what business you're doing. And then, you know, you may have to look back and be like, oh, (laughs) we built the entirely wrong thing here. But if you skip that step where you're trying to feel out what you're doing and you jump to something like microservices or service-oriented architecture you don't know that you're making, you have no confidence at all that you're making the right decisions. Like it's hard to make the right decisions even with more information. But when you step to it from the beginning, it makes it like for all the reasons you listed, it makes it hard to respond to giant business changes, right? Whereas if I have everything in one Rails app that's just doing method dispatch, it's a lot easier for me to refactor across than, than it is to do it across several code bases. I think that's absolutely key. And I think that this is where, to me, it's interesting because we're mixing different pattern languages. Like to me, microservices and, and um, SOA is more an organizational pattern than it's a technical pattern. It's a way to divide a, a workforce of hundreds into operational units that have autonomy and can run on their own schedule and have their own backlog and all that stuff, which is exactly where all this stuff comes from, right? Like it comes from huge, big shops. When, when Amazon famously a long time ago said, we're going to do everything SOA, it was because they had hundreds and thousands of programmers, right? And then in that context, it totally makes sense because those individual groups act much more like separate companies from a software development perspective than, well, some small shop starting out with three, five, 10, 20 developers do, right? Once you're at that small scale, you just shouldn't be using the patterns of the hyperscale. It's kind of the same thing of software in general. When you're dealing with internet scale, like you have to do things differently. You can't just put everything into a MySQL database that is, is one master with a read slave, right? Like it, it doesn't work at some level. Like Facebook is not going to run off that architecture. They need different types of software to solve their problems. But if you try to apply the Facebook level of complexity in their stack to your little thing getting off the ground, you're never getting off the ground. Like the complexity alone will crush you right from the get-go. You will never get to the point where they are now. And they weren't either, right? Like if you look at any of these mega apps, Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatever, you think their V1 looks anything like what they ended up with? Of course it doesn't because they were never going to end up where they ended up if they had tried to do it that way. Just look at Twitter, right? Like they have, what, hundreds of developers at this point. What's the glacial pace of adding features to Twitter? Like it's measured in eons, right? Like basically nothing changes for a very long time because it's incredibly painful to change a ship the size of 
of Twitter, right? Same thing with Amazon, same thing with any big shop. Like, it just doesn't move that fast because the main concern you have at that point is like, how do we deal with 100 billion tweets every day, right? Like, so, so it just changes versus in those early days, as you correctly say, the main focus is like, what do we want to do? B, how can we get a market fit? How can we figure this stuff out? And you have to be able to make those changes incredibly quickly. And that is where Rails is targeted. Like that's that big space. The, the 99% of apps that do never ever reach the internet scale of a Facebook or a, a Twitter where it is now, Rails will help you get to that point, but it won't necessarily be the right, but not only Rails, right? Architectures of, of this type that Rails encourages, the, the monolithic setups, will help you get to a point where you can have the luxury of considering, what will we do with hundreds of developers we now have? Though one side point I think is just kind of funny is that monoliths are actually kind of popular even at the hyperscale. Like, uh, I don't know how much you guys have checked into the Facebook setup, but they're like, hey, let's just put everything in one repo. This mega repo of, I don't know what they're at, like petabytes of data into Git. Um, so I think uh, e- even if you were to concede that at some level of the, the scale of Facebook, maybe you need a different architecture, it's interesting to see that even Facebook is saying, eh, actually, we don't want that. Well, and if you get to that scale, then you presumably will be making the money that is required to actually deal with that complexity, right? I mean, it's not just like you get there and then, oh, no, we picked the wrong architecture, but we have hundreds of millions of users and presumably a lot of money coming in or a lot of ability to get investors. How could we possibly deal with it? Like Facebook and Twitter and Amazon have have the money and, and resources to throw at that problem and, and re-architect their system when they get to that point. And I think the, the most important thing here, too, is that there is no other way. Like, even if you yeah. thought you could start on day one with the perfect architecture for how things would look when you have hundreds of millions of users, you will be wrong in almost all instances. Like, almost everyone I've talked to that reached that level of scale go like, oh, yeah, like, we thought it had to be like this and this and this and this, and we were totally wrong. It had to be a completely different way that you only discovered once you actually got there, right? Um, so this notion that you can architect on day one with this tiny little team how things will look once they're five orders of magnitude larger is just a mirage. It's just not going to happen. So you might as well just admit up front that the app that works for, I don't know, a handful of developers and scales to maybe just tens of millions of users will not be the same kind of app that you need once you have hundreds of developers and hundreds of millions of users. Yeah, I mean, I think the point of it being a big company thing that makes that lets, you know, hyperscale, I guess you called it, that lets these big companies with big organizations work with like smaller teams that can be more productive than trying to synchronize across 100 developers. That's an excellent point. Like I used to work at Akamai, which has probably hundreds of developers, if not a thousand. Right. And so if we didn't have services, that, that wouldn't work particularly well. But there are other smaller cases where I think services probably do make some sense, even when you control the entire thing. Like, I know that um, we have this service called Hound, which basically runs a whole bunch of linters on pull requests and adds comments to them and, and GitHub uh, uh, on GitHub to let you know like if you violated a style guide or something. Those linters all have their own dependencies, and the dependencies sometimes can overlap and conflict in ways, ways you weren't expecting, right? So that's a technical problem that needs to be solved that's leading them down to this, like, okay, we have to isolate them, so we need different processes, we need different services. 
Which I think, I mean, that's of course, that's always fair, right? Like right. The, the, the battleground here is not like the particular case where it actually all lines up. It's whether microservices is a good starting point for most people most of the time. And that's where like, I wanted to put a stake in the ground and say like absolutely effing not. Like absolutely not is this a thing that most people should have on their radar as like when we were starting out. Yep. Most people most of the time should be building majestic monoliths from day one, right? They should be focusing on just writing fantastic software, not fantastically complicated architectures. Yeah, I agree. I have a theory about microservices. I think that uh, we as developers are really bad at establishing and maintaining the boundaries between the objects in our system. And microservices are a knee-jerk reaction to that problem, where if we can't, if we can't trust ourselves to maintain these boundaries within our code base. Let's just pull them out into separate code bases and then enforce the boundaries that way. And I think that it's being maybe not presented, but I think it's being used in a lot of cases as a replacement for just good object oriented design. I, I completely agree with that. And the, the problem is that what follows from there is that the overall understanding of the system becomes harder. That was, okay. uh, I, I quoted, a uh, somebody sent me, um, a quote from uh, Linus's book about Linux, uh, about how it was sort of set up and how it was um, sort of micro versus macro organization and things. And he made a great point, which is ultimately what we have to evaluate these things off, at least in a small team, is how hard is it to understand the system, right? So if you take a one monolith and you break it into five subsystems, each individual of those five subsystems might very well be easier to understand than the monolith, right? Because it's dealing with just a, a slice of the cake. But when you have to then understand the whole system, you're exponentially increasing the complexity and the fail states and all these other things, right? So you actually made, you had sort of, you were looking at your monolith and like, yeah, it's a little hard to understand. You chopped it up into five pieces and now the whole system is just much harder to understand. You didn't actually solve the problem. You just shoved it into five different boxes and those individual boxes are easier to understand, but the overall system got worse. Right. And then of course, the, some systems do just get to the point where the system as a whole is so large and so complex that at any level, understanding the entire system is an unreasonable expectation. And then, and then it makes sense to break it into the smaller boxes. Totally, which is again, the organizational scale thing, right? Like yep. once you get to the point where you have these hundreds of developers, like no individual developer is going to understand everything in the whole system. But if you're working with teams of 5, 10, 20 people, like it should be reasonable for that group of people to have an understanding of the whole system. I mean, God help you if, if none of them do. Like if you're working with five people and nobody knows how the system works in totality, like it, you might as well just declare bankruptcy right now. So how getting back to Rightboard for a second, how learning what you learned from that if you had the same situation where you had three you know applications that needed the same functionality how would you provide that today like without doing without doing a service so uh, i try to share at a lower level so sharing things at a below the fold kind of code level one of the things i've found is we have a number of services like it's not just Rightboard. we have also a um, single sign-on system called 37 id that's well was called 37ID, now it's called Basecamp ID, I suppose, that's used across all the apps that we have. So you can log into it with Campfire and HiRise and all the other apps that we have, right? I think that there's still a kernel of goodness there of that being sort of a separate system. What wasn't good was that we were trying to extract things at way too high a level. We were trying to extract things all the way up to the HTML level. 
because we were like, oh, these login screens, they look pretty similar. Like it's just a logo that gets swapped. And then of course it never works out like that, right? Like we introduce another new app and we redesign how the login screen looks. And now all of a sudden we're carrying this overall system around that like, eh, it didn't quite match the particular case of the new system. Now we have to pervert it and add if statements and it gets horribly complex. I think we have like five different branches of this uh, single sign-on system for like different combination of versions of Rails and different combinations of what the UI was supposed to look like. The permutations just go through the roof. And what we realized for that was just like, we just shouldn't try to share at that high level, which of course, that's a rant I've been on for a decade, right? Like that uh, trying to share competence at the high level, including UI and everything, is it, just a pipe dream, right? Like that That's... One of the reasons I've never been a big fan of omnibus gems like device and and similar that try to share a lot of very high surface UI and functionality because the configuration of those things to the particular case ends up being more code than if you're just written it from scratch. The problem with writing from scratch, of course, is you have to understand it, but you have to understand it eventually anyway. So you might as well try to just understand the problem up front. Like, that's usually the argument I hear from something like device. Oh, login security is hard. Like, uh, if I just use a gem that has somehow figured it out, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to understand it. Like, yeah, I wish it worked like that. It doesn't. I would say, like, that I think to a certain extent that is true. Like, Rails does now have good primitives for building an authenticate. Like, you can use has secure password, right? Exactly. That's the level. Right, but before has secure password... It would be insane for somebody to try and decide, like, oh, this is how I'm going. Like, I'm going to store passwords like this. Like, I don't, I, I mean, maybe not insane, but like, it's unreasonable for us to expect everybody to make that decision correctly. So, but has secure password is a good abstraction to build on. I'm going to disagree because the, the whole, what has secure password does is basically just say one sentence BC crypt is what you should do. Right? Like, that's all it is. There's almost no code. If you look at the implementation of has secure password, there's almost nothing there. It's basically the thinnest of wrappers around BC Crypt. And the only reason we shoved that into Rails was just such that, like, that would be a, a very high-level recommendation. So I think it's one of those things where, on the surface, it looks like, oh, shit, understanding security or understanding hashing um, algorithms is hard. Does I'm just not going to even try. When in reality, in this case, the answer is actually pretty simple. Like, I'm not asking anyone to implement the BC Crypt algorithm, right? Like, that would be insane. Like, <laughs> absolutely. But there is a BC Crypt gem. If you can expose an API that all it does is sort of, like, turn passwords you get in into a BC Crypted version of it, like, that's actually not that hard. And I think that that's... Sometimes that's the problem I have with, with components that try to sort of say, well... Um, People are not going to understand. Like, this is actually too complicated. You cannot understand how you're supposed to create lock-in and um, password reset and these sorts of things. When what people really just need is, is some education. And I'd rather give them that education than I'd give them a bunch of code that they are too afraid of even trying to understand. But so like a, a, a something more complicated along those lines that like I, I think you would hopefully agree with would be like um, CSRF token stuff, right? Rails does that for you. That, yes, I do, yes. that I do feel like is totally unreasonable for a regular developer to try to understand. Like I've tried to, in a previous company, I tried, we weren't using Rails and I noticed that we had giant CSRF holes. So I was like, okay, I can, I can, I understand this. I can build something right. that is, no, can protect me from CSRF stuff. And then I built it 
and went down the line and took it to the security people at the company and was like, look at this, I built. And they were like, ah, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Right? <laughs> and I thought I knew what I was talking about. And I was on the right track, but I got it wrong. So there are there certainly are certain thresholds. Like maybe password doesn't meet your threshold, but things like CSRF or cross-site scripting get start to get a little... Cross-site scripting is probably in that middle ground. And then CSRF, as you think, is something that's a little harder for people to grasp. I totally agree. And, but there, my argument is not so much whether it's hard or, or not hard to grasp, but whether it's abstractable or not. And I think yeah. in, in those cases, it's completely abstractable. Like you do not actually have to understand how this works to be able to use it. Versus if you look at sort of the whole flow of login and password reset and sending out emails and, and dealing with all that stuff, I think there is stuff there you have to understand because that has a direct impact on how you design your app and how you do all that stuff. Versus when it comes to CRSF tokens, you can just say, oh, well, where else does that? It sends them over. And if I do it wrong, I get an invalid authenticity token um, exception, right? So that, that's, that's, again, that borderline. Like, where do we make the cut about the things we share and the things we, we don't share? Like, to me, I always had that line in the sand of as soon as it becomes user visible, like, I don't want to share it. And every time I try to share it, I get burned. And usually user visible means controller or actually HTML code or final JavaScript if it has a stylistic approach to it or anything that needs CSS of any kind, which is why we yanked things like um, we had a way of presenting errors at one point. I forget what the method was called. Like, so an active record fails a number of validations. We have a way of presenting those validations in the form. But that was a very stylistic approach that was actually just abstracted out of how we used to present errors in the uh, 37 signals base camp signup form. Then we changed how that design was. Like instead of presenting all the errors up front, we did them contextually and in line. And all of a sudden, this abstraction was useless. Like it was targeted for a specific design aesthetic and a spe specific use of flow. And that was one of the things where I just thought, yeah, that, that shouldn't be in Rails. Like that's a poor fit for... for uh, a framework like Rails. It's even, I would say it's even a, a tough fit for a gem to do, right? Like I, yes. mean, I, ma I maintain clearance, which is a gem for username and password authentication. But it had like my least favorite parts of it are the UI parts or the, like the higher up we get in the stack, the more work it is for me to maintain in a sane way, right? So people come all the time and say like, Oh, I want to provide default styles. You provide forms. Exactly. I want to have some default styles. And it's like, well, no, I don't want to do that because of all the reasons you just listed. Or they say like, oh, I want some JavaScript authentication here. So like we don't have to hit right. the, the form. You right. know, build all the JavaScript authentication you want in your app. I, I don't want to take on another dependency here and start like forcing these decisions down people's throats. Like I expect that people generate, like we, we provide a, a, a generator for views. So I expect that they generate those views, but it's possible they don't. And that really kind of bothers me. Like, cause now I'm responsible for the markup in their app. And like these things really start to, to bug me. Well, and <laughs> when you, you had talked about killing that though. Right. And then if the only option is just generating, here's a reasonable default for an auth form, that doesn't seem so bad. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to get to is like, I'm not, I'm already like it used to do routing for you. I don't even want to do routing. I don't want to make decisions about what your route should be. I think that's your decision. So all sorts of those things, like, like you said, as you get higher up the stack, the decisions become harder to make for everyone, I think. And which, which then leads you to configuration hell, right? Which is exactly like I was ranting the other day about um, jQuery plugins, right? Like sometimes you look at a jQuery plugin, it's like it's 4,000 lines of code. And you're like... Sheesh, that's a lot of code. And then you look at what would the implementation for the for just the, what I need for this particular case. And you're like, oh, that's 120 lines of code. And you're like, what do these 
4,000 lines of code do? Well, they provide uh, 5,000 configuration points of all the little things that could be different, right? And that's the point where you get to that point where the configuration of what the thing does is like 10 times as large as what the thing itself is. You know you've tried to abstract too high, right? But it's such an alluring prospect, and it's such a siren call that it's like, hey, well, everyone does the same thing. And like, that's the worst part, right? The worst part is when they're sort of superficially similar. And you think, well, I don't really care about like locking and sending a password and reset and all that stuff. Like, that's all the same for all the apps, except it's not. Right. Except you want that style in that way, and you want that validation in that way, and you want all these things. And then for us to collaborate now, we have to deal with this monstrosity of configuration to be able to do so. And that just turns the whole thing into a net negative. All right. I agree. <laughs> and you see, I mean, I think a lot, a lot of people have experienced this pain where, I mean, this comes down to, mis, I think, misunderstanding dry and realizing that's not about the structure of the code or even the words in the code, but about the knowledge of certain concepts. And so you see things like inherited resources where people look at their controllers and they're like, oh, well, all of these bits and pieces right. always look the same. Yep. That's be, let's be dry here and try and abstract that away. Um, I think even not always, but a lot of times moving it, moving like finding the model into a before action instead of just having it in the actions itself really can cause a lot of pain from extracting superficial duplication that's not actually duplicating domain concepts. And it's things that are the same right now, but are going to change independently of one another in the future. Yep, I could agree more. I think that dry is one of those concepts that's, uh, on the one hand, is incredibly powerful, but it's also just been way overused. Like, it's one of those first principles that people usually hit when they come to programming, and they're like, oh, dry, yeah, I totally get that. Like, we shouldn't have the same line of code two different places. And then they just go hog wild with it, right? Like, no, 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 we can't have that line. We can't have this single expression repeated because that would not be dry, right? Like, they become very attached to this notion that I've understood dry, I understand what this principle does, now I'm going to hammer it in everywhere. When I've actually found that there's plenty of cases where um, I'll start out and things are just not dry. Like, they're just, like, damp, right? Like, damp <laughs> is just what I want for this um, because sort of that gives me a path to change things at, uh, at different levels of speed and, and at different times without sort of screwing the whole thing up. Over-drying yeah. and premature drying is, I think... It's one of those things that's just a really nasty thing because it actually leads to the other problem we were just talking about, which is configuration. As soon as you've extracted something out and now it's sort of, you think it's generic, right? And then you run into a particular case that does not fit your generic case. What is your natural instinct? Is it to undry and put the things back? No, it's not. It's to take your generic abstraction and add a configuration point to it. Like, oh yeah, I'm, if I just add this configuration point, I can deal with this particular now. And off to hell you are. Sandy Metz has a point where I think it was a RailsConf talk last year where she made the point that, or maybe it wasn't, I don't exactly remember where, sorry, Sandy, but it was that duplication is cheaper than the wrong abstraction, right? So if you oh, yeah. jump to making an abstraction yes. too early with incomplete information, that's going to end up being more costly because you're going to follow that path that you talked about where you're like, oh, uh, this needs to behave slightly differently in this case. So I guess I put an if here right. and oh, I need to, I need to pass something else in for this case. So I need to have an optional parameter. Uh, and then you just keep chasing that down. So like, let, let it be duplicated until you know, like, is this really duplicated knowledge or is this yes. duplicated structure? Like yes. John was saying. 
Well, I think it's uh, it's 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 always interesting to watch new programmers because I, I do a lot of mentoring uh, at the Turing School here in Denver. So I, I work with very very new programmers who are learning Rails as their first uh, programming experience a lot, and it, they do exactly what you said. They learn dry and they go hog wild with it. And then the worst place that they do it that they that it just really is hurting their code early on is in their tests. And it's actually funny because people have like backronymed DAMP to be a thing for how you're supposed to write tests. And I, I think it stands for duplicated and meaningful phrases is, uh, is what they say <laughs> you're supposed to do. But it's, it's just so it's fascinating watching the, the evolution of new programmers going from, um, you, you know, large amounts of spaghetti code to then starting to build abstractions, starting to look for other people's abstractions that already do what you want, probably in the enumerable module, and then finally coming to this happy medium. Yeah. Which, which I think is also, I mean, that's the natural evolution, right? Like that is yeah. how you learn things. You learn things by going overboard with it. You pick up a concept and you're like, oh, this is the greatest concept ever. Let me apply it everywhere in all the things. And then you realize, yeah, yeah okay, maybe I shouldn't apply it everywhere in all the things. But like it's still a good principle and still works. It's kind of like the adoption curve of, of sort of new technology and new memes. Like you have this... Uh, what is it called? Like uh, sort of peak excitement and a trough of dissolution, and then you find like a happy sort of medium of productivity. And I think that goes with a lot of things, including microservices and including um, sort of these. Uh, I mean, microservices is just a good example now because it's sort of in vogue to to talk about like, oh yeah, you split everything into services and everything's going to be great. And there's something to it, right? Like there's something to it, like that. I'm always sometimes I look at like there was brave I was going to say pioneers but I almost think it's more like cannon father like somebody has to be the front of the front lines right like even though you know you're going to get blown up by artillery in the trenches like oh, all right if you want to go first I mean after you and then hopefully once like all these people have had their software blown up by the artillery somebody's going to figure out oh yeah actually we can avoid the artillery if we get camouflage on or something and like hey there's something lasting for civilization and for programmers at large to be able to take away from that i'm just sort of happy that i don't have to walk into the artillery fire that's <laughs> the first person there yeah it's good to go later and then you know where the uh where Which the landmines are, I guess, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> to keep to continue the metaphor. Well, I, I think I think one of the problems with, uh, that new developers run into, uh, I think you, you've even talked about this in the past, David, is principles and strategies that we use to develop maintainable software can easily be over applied or misapplied if you don't understand why they exist and what pain they're meant to reduce. The, one of the things that I have um, my students go through real, pretty early on is when I'm teaching them dependency injection as a strategy they end up going to the extreme of never injecting their dependencies pretty much universally. They'll find that extreme on their own. And then I teach them, uh, and then I have them go through an assignment where, okay, you can have no capital letters in any of your files except for the main, unless it's like the actual class definition. So you can never reference a constant anywhere. All dependencies must be injected all the time to then show them the extreme pain of overusing it. And then Hopefully they start to see, okay, so this is meant to reduce the pain that I felt here, here, and here. But if I use this wrong, I'll start to feel pain in this way. And then they find the happy medium. Right. And I think that that's why I often volunteer as being the um, pushback on like highlighting the pains, right? Like it's not that none of these strategies are ever suitable or, or never sort of the right thing to do. It's just that I think we have the tendency in the software industry to become enamored with like, oh, there's new, this new pattern, like everything is going to get this pattern hammer on it. And that's going to be wonderful. And 
uh, I then take it upon myself sometimes just say like, no, that's stupid, right? Even though it's not stupid for all the people all the time, it's just sort of like to, to bring some sort of equilibrium or balance back into to the system, you sort of have to have that pushback of saying, do you know what? Actually, I don't think this is, uh, this is a good thing. Because I think it's the same thing when things fall out of vogue, right? Like with the monolithic, like monolith, I, that, that was the point of the, the keynote, right? Like the monolith has become a slur, right? Like you say, oh, you, have mon- you make monolithic software and that's supposed to be something terrible. When, when in reality, it, it, it's nothing of the sort, right? So we sort of continuously go through these cycles where we have to, where we condemn certain aspects of certain techniques because like they're no longer modern or ambitious or any of these other bullshit words we use to, to apply to things that, uh, that we don't like right now. And then we swing back, right? Like rehabilitating concepts that are actually solid and, and tearing down new concepts that actually didn't work uh, as well as proposed. Well, I think it's funny that's become a slur because it literally is a word that means a single system. Right. But that's, uh, that's how it goes with sort of these things sometimes, which is why it's right, the, the rebranding with the, I think it, with integrated system, I think the, the, I had a keynote a couple of years ago where we were talking about um, monkey patching, right? Like monkey patching actually, not so much within the Ruby community, but outside of the Ruby community became a slur in the same sense, right? Like you're doing something bad when you're monkey patching when, to me, I mean, this is one of the very primary things about Ruby that drives me to Ruby is the fact that the system code is not special. I can redefine it and so on. And of course, yes, you can go crazy with that. And that's usually how it came up, right? Like, oh, what if somebody redefined plus to mean like a monkey appeared? Like, wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah. Well, they don't. So the monkey doesn't appear, right? Like the monkey stays <laughs> well, but in the we box. Did do, but we do do that. In, in, I mean, they finally are deprecating it in 2.2, 2.3. But in the standard library, we actually do have a module that redefines the plus method on fixnum to return a rational instead of doing integer math. Gotcha. Which well, is a bad idea. Right. <laughs> and, which is also fine. And I think that that's where you sort of go like, oh, well, there was this one time where a monkey appeared. And like then there's the other eternity of time where the monkey didn't appear and where it was right. just wonderful and we got active support out of it and and we got basically the whole culture that is ruby because we're allowed by the creator to mold the language into our own image yeah i mean i would i i think that like with most things right it's a trade-off so like when you are fully comfortable with a with a code base like if there's a monkey patch or two you know it's there and you know why it's there and hopefully you've done like safe monkey patching which is like i'm going to add this method if at some point this method exists on whatever i'm monkey patching then throw an error before i monkey patch it mm-hmm. right something like that or whatever whatever the case may be but if you're if you're in a project with a lot of turnover or um where you're turning to monkey patches a lot that aren't like like active support i feel like is a series has a series of monkey patches that are almost at this point like just how people expect to use ruby at least Rails, when you're doing Rails, obviously. But I feel like in those projects where with a lot of turnover or where people, like bigger teams, where not everybody's familiar with all parts of the code base, the monkey patches can get dangerous pretty quickly in that like there's no convention for where to put them and where to look to see like what is the monkey patch behavior in this thing. So on the projects yeah, I'm involved yeah, yeah. in, I try to say early on like, oh, you're monkey patching something, put it here so that everybody knows when they start the project, here's right. all the stuff that you might hit up against as weird right it's in this monkey patch directory i also think it's it's when i'm championing the cause of monkey patching it's more in in a spirit of forming dialects so rails 
gets to be a dialect and we can collaborate on our collection of monkey patches within our culture and within our community in ways that are not going to be suitable for all sorts of Ruby projects that do not deal with the web, for example, or, or whatever, right? So it's sort of like, that's the direction I prefer monkey patching to take, which is of course easy for me to say, because if I want something in active support, like I just commit it and push to commit right away, it, perhaps the path is a little longer for most people who want something into active support. But nonetheless, I think that that's, like, that's where the power came from, right? Like that's why, how Rails came to be this sort of magical dialect of Ruby that was so pleasurable to use, but exactly because we could turn it into a dialect. Versus if I had tried to do Rails, any of these other fascist languages like Java that nails everything down to the board with, with change, uh, then like we could do that, right? You can't dialect Java or a lot of other languages that follow the same, the creator, the, the buying creators always write on all these subjects. You can't do that. And, and I, that's what I love about Ruby and Matt's being basically humble enough to say, like, I'm not going to know the right answer for everyone at, in all their places and how they work with things. We try to do the same thing with Rails. Like, you nudge people in the right direction, but you never have these hard laws, right? Like, if you, for your particular project in this particular case, you need to bend the space-time continuum, go ahead, do it, right? Universe might crack, but I trust that you know what you're doing, and we're going to be better off for it. Can we can we switch gears? Because I think we've been talking for like 40 minutes now, and I think people want us to talk about Action Cable. Sure. <laughs> so at, at the keynote, for people who didn't see it yet, we'll put a link in the show notes. Hopefully you've seen it already. You talked about a uh, new framework you're adding to Rails, or new, I guess, is it going to be a new gem, or will it be directly in Rails? Still a little up for debate. Um, okay. I go back and forth between those two. Okay, but it, it, what it's going to do before we jump into it is basically it, it provides WebSocket support. Is that correct? Yep. Not just Web. It basically uses WebSockets to give you something much more valuable. It gives you a, a framework for dealing with basically live updates in your app. All sorts of live updates. WebSockets just happens to be the best underpinning that we can make that happen. But it's really an implementational detail. Like, you could use all of Action Cable and not even really know that it's WebSockets that's powering it. And we could switch out that it is WebSockets into something else. You could do long polling. You could do a variety of other techniques to basically deliver this. But what Action Cable tries to do is just all these bits in, a, in an app that need to be real-time, like a, a little um, indicator of how many emails you have pending or, or full chat system or anything else that requires low-latency updates where polling is not an appropriate technique, Action Cable is there to give that a home. And to give that a home within your integrated system. I mean, that's really the, the big deal here, right? Is that people have been doing so, all sorts of things with, with WebSockets for a long time. And if you're doing it within your traditional Rails app, what that usually meant was when you did WebSockets, you built basically a microsystem, right? You built another little system to deal with the, with the live stuff. And then you might, maybe you implemented that in Ruby with event machine, or maybe you picked even a whole other language to do that in, but it was not part of an integrated system, which meant it sort of meant duplication. Like if you were trying to do things with live objects that were part of your domain model already, you couldn't reuse your domain models. That's really the main driver. The main driver for me was, hey, I have this wonderful domain model of active records and pure Ruby objects and all these other things I have in domain, my domain model. I want to be able to use those for the live stuff. Why wouldn't I? 
And if I build a microservice that either runs an event machine in Ruby or it runs in a whole different environment, I can't do that. I can't just use all this stuff because if I do it in an event machine, it puts all these sort of draconian restrictions on what I can actually do to ensure I don't block the, the loop. And if I put them in, in something else in another service, I can't use them at all either. And now I'm reduced to basically a distributed system again, like passing JSON back and forth or passing some other, other, other form of serialization back and forth. And that's just not a great scenario. Um, Action Cable brings it home, gives it a place in the app where it fits in with the rest of the app as though it was just another form of a controller in some sense. Okay. At least that's the vision. Okay, cool. There's like, I, I feel like there's a lot of questions still around Action Cable because people haven't seen it yet, right? right? So like true or false, it adds Redis as a dependency. True for the moment in the sense that Redis was just the shortest path to get from A to B and it's so perfectly fit as a, to use a, the Redis pups up as a um, channel for sending these things back and forth just worked well. But there's nothing fundamentally in it. Like if you wanted to use another queuing system and shove it in there instead of Redis pops up, we could totally figure that out. Like when I started working on Active Record, I can tell you that the only adapter, actually it wasn't even an adapter at that time. It was hard coded, it was just MySQL, right? Like that's how you bootstrap anything. You don't bootstrap it by imagining all these other configuration points. That's exactly why we have the community, right? Like for my use case, I don't give a rat about any other queuing system. I'm not gonna use them. Redis pops up, totally solves my use case. So that's what I'm gonna use. That's what I'm gonna build. But then the wonderful thing of open source is, put it out there. Hey, if somebody wants to make an adapter system for how the queuing works and they want to plug in something else, fantastico. Like, go right ahead. There's nothing philosophical against that. So then the other questions I think I see around it a lot, like you said that using Event Machine, you didn't enjoy doing that. So like, is Action Cable built on top of Event, event Machine? Because I've seen a lot of people say claiming that it was. And It is and it isn't in the sense that it does all its uh, connection management on top of event machine, uh, sort of like, hey, this client connected, this client disconnected, and dealing with, with the connection part of it, that happens on the event machine, but you're not writing your own code there. Like where you're writing your own code in Action Cable is in the interaction with the live stuff. Like, hey, I want to increment this counter here. That loop, that code does not happen in event machine. It happens in a thread. And that's important because I do not want to subject your domain model to event machine's restrictions. I do not want you just because you call a blocking call in your, in your domain model because you fetched something or you forgot to use the right uh, adapter or library that, that doesn't work with the event machine that all of a sudden your app is just going to block, right? And you don't want that to happen. So that's why we split it out. So it's a two-step event machine for all the stuff we can abstract and make generic that you don't actually have to code against and we can then do the hard work of making sure it never blocks and then threads for all the stuff that's user code, so to speak. Um, your own stuff interacting with your domain model, things that may very well block, but it doesn't matter because it's just a threat. And then a lot of people drawing corollaries to Fay. So how do how do you think Action Cable compares to? So Fay, is... we actually use Fay right now, we, or we use Fay WebSockets right now. And Fay is a great sort of low level toolkit for dealing with this stuff. Action Cable aims to be at a much higher level. It, it to me, in some ways, it's kind of like like how does a, a MySQL two adapter compare to Active Record? Well. They symbiotically, like one builds on top of the other. And that's what Action Cable does. It's trying to build a higher level of abstraction where you're actually not caring that much about the mechanics of how WebSockets work and sort of that low level protocol interaction. You care more about sort of 
these high-level ideas of like, oh, something updated, I want to push that live, how should I do that, how should I communicate between these channels and so forth. So it's an abstraction level above it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I get back to like, I feel like a lot of these questions are answered by if people could see this. So when do you think people will be able to see and comment on this? Totally. So we're sort of working on right now to get it to a state where we feel good about open sourcing it. And some of that is just getting a little bit of uh, performance work on it, a little bit of debugging, a little bit of logging in general. But I'm hoping that like within a month or so, we'll have something that, again, will be hard not hard-coded, well, hard-coded in the sense that like the Redis dependency will be fixed in there in the first initial release that we put out there. And then hopefully a lot of other people will join the cause and, and, and change it and help us sort of expand the use cases. That's usually where I start. Like I, I'll start, I'll open source something when it solves one use case really well, but that might not be your use case, right? Like it solves this one, that was the same thing with Turbolinks, right? Or if anything else in the history of things I've open sourced. I focus just on solving my use case. And then let that be an open invitation to anyone who then wants to be, hey, that's great. Like I can use 60% of that or I can use 80% of that. And like I'm going to bring my 20% or my 40% and together we'll have 120% or 200% instead of just the, the 100%, right? So it sort of adds up. So anyway, short, the short version, I hope in about a month we'll see deadlines and this kind of stuff is sometimes a little vague, but I certainly want to get it out there well, well in advance of Rails 5 because I want to make sure that everyone who's interested in collaborating on it has a chance to extend it in all these wonderful ways before we shove it into the framework, either as a full-on dependency or just as an encouraged thing in the gem file or whatever we end up doing. Yeah, I, personally, I'd love to see it in the gem file just because I don't see it. What would be the downside, do you think, to having it just in the gem file? Well, you could say that about anything. What would be the downside of having action view in the gem file? What if I don't sure. use views in my thing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, to, to me, the, the answer is, is this something that, I, I go through that with all features. Is this something that most people would use most of the time if they're trying to build an app at the scale of a Basecamp, a Shopify, a GitHub, something like that that's like a large integrated system? That to me is where defaults go. And then... If it doesn't fit that, we can shove it into the gem file. Or if it's exceptionally controversial, sometimes we'll shove it into to the gem file. But I haven't seen a lot of controversy around Action Cable. I think a lot of people realize that like this is the way the web is heading. Like I'm not, we're not going to have less live stuff in the next generation of web applications we build. So having a solution for this, it's it's kind of like, hey, should Action Mailer be in in Rails? Well, not everyone sends email, right? Like. It, but it's such a fundamental protocol that is a requirement of so many apps. I think WebSockets is going to eventually get there, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd just like to see it earn its spot there, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, Action Mailer, we, like, it certainly was more popular for, for applications to send their own mail five years ago. It's less popular now, but it's still a very common thing for people to do. And WebSockets may be becoming more and more popular, but like the first iteration of it where we're talking about like it has a dependency on event machine has a dependency on redis and maybe some of those things will be shaken out like in between the period of when it gets open source and people can look at it and and when it ships in rails 5 or with rails 5 but it feels like why not let the people who want to be early adopters of this have this in their system with the dependencies that it brings and any problems it brings um while not affecting people who don't need this in their lives right now yeah i don't know i mean i i can see that argument the other argument is that Rails wants to sort of, or I want Rails to, if I see something that's like 
this is just going to happen. Like for me, Bundler is another example of this. Like when I first saw Bundler, the second I saw it, I thought like, this is awesome. And every single Rails app is going to run this eventually. That took like two years between that insight and when that happened, but Rails helped it happen, right? So that, that's often the case with these things is like, we can drag things forward. Same thing, for example, with the Ruby dependency. So Rails 5 is going to ship with a Ruby dependency of 2.22 plus Great. right now. Fantastic. It might even be uh, whatever that is, right? Like a 2.2 series that's the, the latest. That's going to drag some people who otherwise would not have upgraded to 2.2 into 2.2 just because mm -hmm. they want to use Rails 5, right? So that's forcing the community forward into adopting things that they perhaps would have been a lot slower to adopt on their own because we're dealing with the whole thing as an integrated system. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value to that. Like I see other communities have to, who have different values, like let's just say Python, um, the pace with which they're interested in adopting Python 3. And I'm like, thank heavens, that's not Ruby. Well, and Matt's talked about this a lot during his keynote at RubyConf, right? And that's why he he mentioned every time he makes big breaking changes, he always tries to couple that with big performance improvements, that so there's a little bit of carrot yes. and a little bit of stick. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think that that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think Rails in many ways follow the same thing. This is the same, like, let's offer you like a, a whole menu here. Like, you might not like one or two of the dishes, but like, at the end of the evening, you're going to be very thrilled that you went to our establishment and, and chose to have a meal here. Well, and the big upside to just having it be in the in the default generated gem file, though, right, is it also just kills the Redis as a hard dependency argument. If you don't want Redis as a hard dependency, you can remove it from your gem file. Well, I think we can solve that problem anyway. Like, obviously, okay. I don't think that just like, for example, let's say um, your app doesn't use a database connection, right? Like mm -hmm. active record is still a hard dependency of Rails. You don't have to install an adapter, right? Like you don't have to you don't have to install MySQL on your system to use Rails right. without that. And that's how it should be. Obviously, you should be able to use Rails without having to install Redis. So it's not going to be harder of a dependency than if you use Action Cable at the moment, yes, you have to use Redis. But if you don't end up using that, you don't have to. Just like Active Record doesn't require you to install MySQL or Postgres or any other database at all, even though it's baked into a dependency of Rails as a Rails. There, there, there is a downside, though, even just to having code loaded in the system, though, especially when it comes to transitive dependencies. Like, for example, we were talking about Action Mailer, and there actually is, if you don't send email, a pretty big downside to having Action Mailer around. It's getting a lot smaller. Richard Schneeman's doing a lot of work on our transitive dependencies to fix this. But if you use a forking web server, all of the additional memory usage from these gems, uh, specifically the MIME types gem, the mail gem, like the stuff that we just use in Action Controller and Action Mailer because, hey, that's how we're going to do our job. But like, for example, the mail gem used to be, I don't believe this is true any longer, but used to automatically always include all of the email parsing code as well, which most apps are sending email, significantly fewer apps are actually parsing email. And that included the entire Regal state machine in memory. And if you had a forking web server, that would get copied for every process. And we're talking 10, right. 15 megabytes of RAM per process, which would very quickly balloon into a couple hundred megs. Yes. But to me, that's implementation issues. Yes. Not sort of, there's nothing philosophical about it. Like, it's bugs, in my opinion. Like, if you don't use um, sort of the inbound processing, like, the inbound processing shouldn't be loading all of its dependencies. And that's the same thing I feel about this. Like, that um, action cable, if it ends up being just a default part of the structure, it should certainly not, like, 
automatically require the Redis adapter or any other heavy bits of code, like Fay or whatever we end up doing for the mapping, the thing should just automatically kick in. What I just don't want is, as a general rule, I just want like the whole package to be there already. Like I don't want sort of the menu should be designed in advance and it should be great. And if you just sort of follow the standard path, that's going to be good. And if you opt out of one of the dishes, that doesn't carry any heavy penalty. And if we find any of those heavy penalties, as we did with Action Mailer, we'll fix them as though they were bugs. How does having it in the default generate a gem file oppose that, though? Because that is our menu that we're giving you, isn't it? Well, it's, it's all a matter of degree. It's a, sort of how much of an opt-out you make something, right? Like, it's the difference between sort of going to a restaurant and like, hey, this is a fixed menu, and like you're just going to tell this chef that you, you're allergic to, I don't know, shellfish, right? Like, that's, that's a different level than the chef pretending, presenting you with a menu and saying, hey, pick the things you want or not want. Um, so it's all just matters of degree. Sure. But it's also a matter of some things are about code and some things about sort of direction and culture. And I think one direction I'd like to see Rails in is that more Rails app choose because Rails nudges them in that direction to take advantage of WebSockets, to make better apps, to make more live apps, to make more sort of fluid apps because this functionality is now there and encouraged. Um, I think people will, will pick it up. So pretty similar to the effect that I would say, like you, you mentioned Bundler, I'd say another example of a technology that gained a lot of its popularity from Rails is CoffeeScript. Yep, exactly. I, I mean, again, if you are determined enough not to want something, you should be able to take it out. Like, I don't want anything in Rails to be sort of shoved into your face so hard that there's no way to avoid it. But I don't mind it being a little bit of a hassle, <laughs> to be honest. Like, the more sure. I believe in something, the more I think it's a acceptable part of it, that it's a little bit more of a hassle. And again, we're talking about sort of very limited sort of measures of hassle, right? Like if you don't, CoffeeScript is obviously extremely easy to, to take out. But even the other things that are included by default, if you don't use them, like it's, it's not a big deal. But it just sends a signal. Hey, Rails is a framework that, that thinks WebSockets is really important to create live, great, good applications. And I encourage you strongly to have a look at this and include it in your app. Cool. So we've been going for about an hour. Yep, I actually else? do have to scoot. Okay. Cool. Do you have anything you want to plug? No, I think I, I plug Basecamp every time I talk. That's just sort of implicit in my uh, speech pattern at this point. So I think that that's been done heavily enough. Okay, cool. Right. Thanks a lot for joining us. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 14. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. I want to thank our guest, DHH, for joining us. If you have any feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm or tweet us at underscore bikeshed. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Ring, ring. Ring.